When I turned my shoes in, I asked for a trade, and they wouldn't give it to me, but that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a new pair of shoes for $5, so, but I guess I'll just get those old ones shined up. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed last week. Some of you who are really smart said that was great, and the rest of you are saying, who was that guy? Uh, and I was told to answer all the questions that were remaining uh, after we broke up, but I thought maybe we'll not do that. Maybe we had enough on creation last week. Uh, this week, you have, those of you who are in discussion groups, we gave you questions, and uh, we only gave them to you through chapter uh, 11, 9 through 11, and we left off 12 through 14. I'm sorry, but we're going to finish Zechariah today, and we're going to start on that Italian prophet of Malachi next week. And uh, you'll notice that in our studies of Malachi, we're taking a several weeks. That could be because it's the speaker's favorite minor prophet, or it could be because we want to take at least one of the minor prophets and do it, give it due diligence and reasonable study. Because when we're going, like we are today, through six chapters of a book, I mean, we're hardly saying that this is a, a Bible study. It's a, a, a Bible drive-by. I mean, that's about all, about all it is. Uh, but we're going to, with Malachi, we're going to slow down. We're going to take uh, the several topics that he raises, all of which are very, very important. And uh, he has some things that are unique to his own teaching. And so we're going to explore these things, and I hope with real profit for all of us uh, in the weeks ahead until we come to the end of this, this season's Amen. Well, let's take a look at Zechariah, whose uh, name simply rem- means God remembers. And uh, it's very important that God remembers because men forget. Uh, here we are again in the 5th century after the Israelites have returned from Babylon. They have started construction on the temples. As a matter of fact, they've finished it. And they've hardly been there one generation and they're already forgetting what the Lord has done. They're already forgetting His Word. They're already going their own way. It's absolutely unbelievable. And what we're going to get in Zechariah 9 through 14 are some of the same things that we've seen before in the other prophets, but with some new twists that we'll pick up as we go through it. But some of you are going to say, well, here we go again. And I've had several of you say to me, reading these minor prophets is unbelievable. You would say, we're getting new things out of each one, but doggone, it seems like we're just reading the same thing every time we read one of those minor prophets. God's going to judge you, but then He's going to save you. God's going to judge you, and then God's going to save you. Well, the reason for that is that this is exactly the way we behave. God ju- disciplines us, judges us, and then we realize we were awakened to our own sin. We get it straight, and then just a little while later, we're into it again. So what you see in the Minor Prophets, if you have this kind of mind-numbing sequence, like you do when you read the, the book of the Judges, where they would forget God, and then He would deliver them. And then he'd then forget him. Then he'd raise up another deliverer. It's just mind-numbing. Going around in a circle. That's the way we are. Mind-numbing rebellion against God. If you get bored with the Bible, think how bored God gets with you sometimes. And when you look at it that way, you realize he's not bored with you. He happens to be in love with you. That's the reason you get all this stuff. He keeps coming back to us. So if in the reading of the Scriptures, you're picking up a pattern here. That pattern is very important. And the fact that you go through the pattern, you spend a year, you go through the Minor Prophets, and you see this over and over again, whether it be in the time of Assyria or the time of the Babylonians, or now even as we move toward the time of the Greeks here in Zechariah, 
who are going to be coming in the next century. Whether you, whatever the sequence is, the sequence is there for a reason. Because this is what it means to follow God, is that even in the midst of our rebellion, which is mind-numbing, He is always coming back to us. Now, as we've looked at Zechariah uh, 2 and 3 weeks ago, we saw in the first six chapters of Zechariah that in order for us to get our lives straight, we've got to return to a godly vision for our lives. And we saw how important vision is to the prophets. And since we are the New Testament prophets, all God's children will prophesy, says Peter at Pentecost. When the Spirit comes, people are speaking in tongues. He said, this is what was spoken of in the prophet Joel. In the last days, the sons and daughters would prophesy. All of, the, all of them would prophesy, not just a few. We're the prophets. And for us to be prophets in our day, we've got to be men of vision. That means we have to have the ultimate vision in view, and that means that we have to ask God for vision in our lives. And we were kind of pressed in those six chapters to get to the conclusions, but, but we know that if we're to have vision, we're to be people who know the book, and people who have time alone with the Lord, and people who really seek Him to give us a vision for our lives. What is the vision for your life? You really need one. And it ought to be connected to the vision of God in the end time. That's what we saw with Zechariah. That's what brings energy. And uh, as Earl was praying a moment ago, that's what casts out the fear is that you know you have a purpose in life. If God takes you before you think He's going to take you, it's fine. It's, fine. it's, his, it's his purpose for your life. We need to return to a godly vision. Then when we came to chapter 7 and 8, we said that we need to return to a godly joy. We need to return to authentic joy. And we said that authentic joy comes from authentic worship and authentic faith. That's where our joy is going to come from. We saw that joy is very important. That if we're a bunch of Eeyores, we're going to lose our power to transform this world on behalf of Christ. The joy of the Lord is our strength, said Nehemiah. And we saw that joy is not an option. That if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, one thing that marks us out is that we have a deep joy in our hearts. You say, well, how could I get that? I've just never been a joyful person. You cultivate it. Paul said, I learned contentment. I learned it. Where did he learn it? In prison. So you've got some bad circumstances. One of the things God is doing in your life right now is to teach you contentment, to teach you real joy, authentic joy in the midst of your circumstances. <clears throat> you say, well, I, thought, I always thought I was a joyful person until I got into this kind of circumstance. Well, what you had before might be a natural joy. You were happy because life was working your way. When that is erased, then what you're left with is the joy you have in the Lord and in His future for you and in His presence with you. And that's the joy that's to be cultivated. So God may be doing you a real favor right now and taking away some of the things that otherwise were bringing you joy, but it was not the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is in spite of temporary circumstances. So we saw how important then it is to return to a godly vision for our lives and to return to authentic joy. Now, what we want to come to in, verses, in chapters 9 through 14, I'm kind of conflating the two lessons we were going to have last week and this week, returning to the Good Shepherd and returning home, and I'm just calling it returning home to the Good Shepherd. So we've got to know where home is. As a matter of fact, we've got to know what it is that really makes us feel comfortable and at ease. And that's home. 
I'm the same way. I just love going home. There's just this peace that settles. I just feel like I can relax. And that's where home is, where you feel accepted, where you are relaxed, where you are at ease, where you feel like you belong to this habitat, like it's your natural habitat. That's home. And we need to ask ourselves, what is that habitat for you? What is home for you? We also need to ask ourselves, what is success? What are you really striving to do? What do you hope for in the future? What is it you're going after? Why are you getting up and going to work each day? Why are you doing anything that you do? And I think these these chapters are going to challenge us in terms of these things. What is our hope? What is our idea of success? And what, what is our home? Well, let's look at chapters 9 through 11. And uh, this is entitled, God's Presence is Our Hope. And this is what we, we want. We want to seek the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is the joy of every condition. No matter what your circumstances, the real joy of it is going to come in from appreciating and acknowledging and appropriating His presence. That's where it comes from. Not from the circumstances themselves, but from Him. Now, why do these folks need to know this? Because they're in rebellion. And they've hardened their hearts. It's just amazing how often we do this. Just It's almost daily. <clears throat> I remember when uh, our third child was born. This is David. Some of you may know our son David, who's now 25. He coaches college basketball. He's about 6'6". Six, six. But <clears throat> I'm remembering days when he was about like that little blonde-headed, toad-headed kid. And honestly, this kid sometimes, we thought that he was deaf. Allison thought he was deaf or had hearing problems. I knew that it was his blockhead personality. She thought it was his ears. So we took him to the doctor to see if his ears were right. You know, no, his ear's fine. It's his head. That's the problem. And so David, a classic example, we're, we put David to bed. And we go down and sit in the living room. We say, David, now stay in bed. So we're sitting there talking in the living room. Here comes David down the stairs. Hi, everybody, you know. The kid's three years old. We said, David, we said to get in bed. He just looks at us. So I said, all right, David. And I take him, I pick him up and I take him to bed and I explain to him what is going to happen to him if he gets out of bed again. So I'm sitting in the living room with my wife. A few moments later, here comes David. Hi, everybody. David, you know, we're trying not to laugh, but I already promised him I was a spanking. So we go up the stairs and I whack him and say, David, now stay in the bed. He looks at me like this. I go down the living room. Five minutes later, hi, everybody. I go, what is wrong with this kid? This guy's going to be a mass murderer. You know, he just is <laughs> terrible. So. I said, David, you've got to stay in your bed. Yeah, I really start. I talk, I'm talking rough with him. I'm, I spanked him a little harder. I put him in bed, and he actually drew tears. Five minutes later, hi, everybody. Your tears come down. He says, hi, everybody. So here's what I do. I take him up. I don't hit him anymore. I take him up. I put him in bed. And I close the door. And I push a big trunk against the door. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do? So I go down the living room. Five minutes later, I hear a boom, boom, boom. And he pushes that trunk back, comes to the top of the stairs. Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm thinking, I, I just don't know what to do. So 
I get my screwdriver out, which I don't do very often, and I put a little latch lock on his door. And I put him in his bed and tell him he has to stay there. I close the door and I lock the blooming thing. And I go down and sit in the living room. Boom! Boom! And finally, it, it subsides. I go up an hour later and I open the door and there's David asleep at the threshold. <laughs> and that's what we do. We lock him in his room and he beats the door until he falls asleep at the threshold. That's it. That's Israel. That's us guys. That's what we do. It's unbelievable. And you're sitting there as a, you know, as a parent thinking, I don't know what got in this kid's head. Well, guess what? God's looking down at us this morning saying, I don't know what's gotten into their minds. Are they deaf? <laughs> you know, Sandy's wife thinks so. No, it's not deaf. It's just a hard head. And so what is God going to do with us? You know, He disciplines us and we come right back down and say, Hi God, here I am. Writing the same old pornography that I was yesterday. Hi, God. I'm still flirting with someone who's not my wife and I'm married. Hi, God. Uh, I'm still being dishonest on my tax return, which comes up in two weeks and don't forget it. Hi, God. You know, and just playing along as though nothing is happening. Well, what we get in chapters 9 through 14 is what, what God does about it. And let's just see what he does. Now, chapter 9, we're going to see that God's presence is our hope and these first Eight verses, God will one day avenge us. You say, what? Avenge us? <laughs> avenge us of what? Is he going to destroy us? No, he's going to destroy your enemies. He's going to destroy Assyria, Phoenicia, Philistia. He's going to take care of these folks who are oppressing you. Look at chapter 9. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will rest upon Damascus. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. And upon Hamath too, which borders on it. And upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea. And she will be consumed by fire. Now look at that. Here is an oppressor of you. And God saying, I'm going to take care of your oppressor. I'm going to take care of the one who's publishing pornography. I'm going to take care of the, of the devil who's tempting you to do it. I'm going to take care of your flesh that's cooperating with it. I'm going to take care of everything that's opposing you. I'm going to destroy it. That's what I'm going to do. So he's taking out vengeance on everything that's oppressing us. And look at verse 8. He says, but I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. So the Lord, first of all, is saying, I'm going to protect these kids of mine. Because, yes, they are responsible for what they do in this life, but I'm going to destroy everything that's leading them astray. Boy, you talk about love. I mean, all that justice demands is that he destroy us because we cooperated with all this stuff. But he is, he is saying, first of all, I'm going to destroy that which is oppressing you and leading you astray. Well, he just treats us so kindly. Look at verse 9. He's going to show us that God will one day send us the shepherd king. What do we need? We need a just and righteous and gracious king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That means the church. We're the daughter of Zion. Israel's the daughter of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar? Palm Sunday is coming up in about ten days, and you'll hear this verse cited. The reason is Matthew cites it. And he says, Palm Sunday was a fulfillment of that text. That's what Matthew says. So what God is promising is that He will one day send the shepherd king, one who will really take care of us, who will avenge us against our enemies, and who will rule over us. So when Jesus comes in on a donkey into Jerusalem, He's fulfilling this text which is saying God's shepherd king has arrived. Or more specifically, God the shepherd king has arrived. So the Israelites with this text knew that one day God was going to come marching in and the whole daughter of Jerusalem, the whole church, would give a shout. And Matthew and all the other apostles are saying, this is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, when Jesus Christ comes into Jerusalem. Now, of course, we know the following days he was slaughtered. And as a sheep before her slaughters is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He humbly accepted what the, the Father had appointed him for. But that march into Jerusalem is very, very crucial. And you notice that leading up to Palm Sunday, he had pronounced judgments upon Jerusalem. And he had said that the city was going to be destroyed in the Mount Olivet Discourse uh, that you get in uh, Matthew 24. But, or actually he gave that discourse after the Palm Sunday. But when in Palm Sunday, he was coming into Jerusalem as the king of the city, the king of the church, and he's going to destroy Jerusalem in judgment. Or he says it's going to be destroyed. He comes on a donkey, not a war horse. So he comes in peace. He comes offering peace. But for those who do continue to rebel against him, there will be destruction. And then in 70 A.D., just 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. So the king of Jerusalem came in to pronounce judgment on the city. You remember he went from Palm Sunday, went straight to the temple, the heart of the city, the place of worship. And there is where he pronounced judgment on the temple itself. Because people had ceased to worship the Lord there and simply used it as a trading post. And he said, worship is gone from this place. And he pronounced judgment on the city. So Jerusalem, just like Jericho years before that, was, uh, had a curse pronounced upon it. You say, well, what, when's Jerusalem going to come back? Well, uh, last year we studied Revelation, didn't we? And in chapter 21, you see Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens. That's the Jerusalem that Christ has prepared for us. And that's when Jerusalem will be restored. So uh, when this chapter is fulfilled and God's presence comes, it comes first to discipline and to judge. We've seen this in the Minor Prophets over and over again. And then it com- He comes to save. And that final salvation is later when He restores Jerusalem, when He builds Jerusalem. We don't build it. He builds it. And so you, you will see then that Zechariah is one of the favorites for Matthew. This is not the only place that gets quoted by Matthew. Matthew is showing that Zechariah is fulfilled only by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he will send us the shepherd king. Now, what does it mean for us to look at this text and other texts that speak of shepherds, like in chapter 11? What does it mean for us to receive God as shepherd or to receive Christ as shepherd? Let's talk about this for just a moment. Let's think about actually what it means to have a saving or intimate relationship with God. One way in which you can think of it is that we relate to God in a complementary way 
according to every name that he uses to describe himself. Let me give you an example. If God calls himself Father, then for us to be intimate with him, we call ourselves sons. In other words, we're children. So we come to God as a child. Or if God or Christ calls himself Master, and he does, he's the master of the wind and the waves. How do we come? We come as slaves. We come as servants. He's master. Or Lord. If he's Lord, we're servants. Or if he's presented in the, if, if Christ is presented in the, in the scriptures as bridegroom, we come as bride. And what would be the sort of way in which the scriptures would think of a bride? Some, someone who loves her husband, who responds to her husband, who adores her husband. So we would be the bride who's coming to him as bridegroom. Well, you can play this on out, but if he presents himself as shepherd, how do we come? As sheep. So for us to have a loving, intimate relationship with God, we come to him like sheep. How do sheep come to him? Completely dependently. Knowing that we cannot find water, we cannot find food, we cannot defend ourselves. We are completely dependent upon the Lord. That's what it means to trust him. You come to him as a sheep. Now, we just sang a moment ago a psalm. I love singing the psalms. That's what the psalms are for. They're for worship in the church. And we too rarely use the songbook that's right in the middle of our Bibles. But we were singing the Bible a moment ago. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. All right? So if we treat him as shepherd, good shepherd, we treat him as someone who will provide everything that we need. And he gets that out of our hearts, that we trust him. For he leadeth me in green pastures and still waters. He gives me food and water. He restoreth my soul. He's able to take care of my inner self, my emotional life, my intellectual life, my spiritual life. I trust it to him. I give it to him because I can't take care of my emotional life, my intellectual life, and my spiritual life. So he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He takes me down the right path. I don't know the right path. I've got all kinds of paths I'll go on. And if you watch sheep, they'll go everywhere. When we were in the Hebrides Islands uh, this past summer, my wife and I, driving around, there just sheep everywhere. And uh, it's interesting, I may have told you this, but I never knew what those orange and black marks were on, the, on their backs. Well, there's a little pouch on the belly of all the male sheep so that when they mate, they can tell who mated them. And some of those little sheep, they had marks all over them. So these sheep, they're going everywhere, having affairs everywhere, going down all kinds of paths, almost hit four of them because they got off the route and they were down there on the highway. They get run over. These sheep are idiots. But He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. He leads me down the right path. The path that's good for me and the path that glorifies His name. And I trust Him with that. And this Bible shows me the path. And if I erode this Bible as the Word of God or speak against it, I'm simply speaking against my own righteousness because I have no path to walk on anymore. So He shows me the path. And then not only that, but in the presence of my enemies, He prepares a table for me. That is, He feeds me when I have the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the uh, Philistines and the Phoenicians breathing down my neck, I have a table set for me in the presence of my enemies. I don't fear my enemies. God will set the table and He'll defend me against them. 
He takes his rod and his staff and he comforts me with that. So I don't even fear the valley of the shadow of death. I trust him with my death. Because I know that he'll take me through the valley. That's what a sheep does. I don't have to worry about myself anymore. It's over. I'm a sheep. And he's the good shepherd. And then he says, surely. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I know where I'm going to live. I know where home is. And it's where the shepherd takes me. Being with the shepherd is home. That's where I'm going to be comfortable. That's where I'm going to be at ease. That's where I'm not going to fear. That's where I'm going to be protected. That's where I can be myself. Is when I'm with him. Now, that's what it means then to rejoice greatly that Christ has come to Jerusalem. And to rejoice greatly that Christ has come to your life. That's where the joy comes from. In receiving Him as He is. And He is Shepherd King. That's what Matthew says. He's the fulfillment of this text. So when God promises that the solution to our mind-numbing rebellion is to send us a Shepherd King who will guard us, discipline us, take care of us, feed us, provide for us, encourage us, that's where our joy comes from. And we will shout aloud. So, that is uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Then we also see that God's presence is our hope because one day God will bring peace to the nations. And you pick that up in verses 10 through 13, particularly 10, where he says, He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the, look at this, blood of my covenant, verse 11, with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So, by the blood of the covenant, what's that? Well, we know from Genesis 15 there was blood in the covenant with Abraham. We know in Exodus, remember, there was blood from the covenant there. We know this blood has to do with the death of a lamb or a death of an animal, which is used sacramentally to atone for our sins, all pointing toward the day when a real valuable sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Himself, will lay down His life, and that's the reason that when Jesus lifted up the cup on Monday, Thursday, He said, this cup is the new covenant in My blood, shed for the remission of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of Me. So the cup is sacramentally representing for us the blood of the covenant. That blood that was shed back in Genesis 15 and Exodus and so on. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. And how do we know that God is our hope? Because He will bring peace through the blood of the covenant. And gentlemen, this is the only way this world is going to have peace. We're going to, one day, just like we got out of Vietnam, one day we're going to get out of Iraq. I don't know, I may be dead by then, but one day we'll be out of there. But we'll be right on to something else. It's, I mean, look at the 20th century, for heaven's sakes. Look at the 19th century. It's just one blooming thing after another. It's just one war after another. It's one more field for our sons to die on. It's just over and over and over again. And gentlemen, there's nothing wrong in particular about the United States of America. You look at any country that's ever had the power to prosecute war, and what have they done? They've prosecuted war. So it's just mind-numbing, isn't it? And there's only one solution, and that is that we have a real king who brings righteousness, who's not selfish. Neither is he just selfish for his interests or his own kingdom's interests, but he loves the world. That's the king that we're going to get one day. And until then, we don't really have hope because we don't have his presence uh, completely fulfilled among us. 
Then fourthly, we'll see that God will one day make us beautiful. I know for some of you this sounds like a miracle, and it is. Uh, but it's an amazing thing. He will actually transform us. Then the Lord, verse 14, will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning and so on. And we'll see, first of all, we'll be intoxicated with joy. For some of you, that's not a stretch at all. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. They'll just be full of joy. Be the greatest party you've ever seen in your life. We'll be intoxicated with Him. Secondly, we'll be reflecting His glory. Look at these verses, verses 16 and 17. They will sparkle in His land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. So, He will make us absolutely gorgeous in His sight. And i got some good news for you. Even now, you're that way in His sight. But one day, you'll be that way in everybody else's sight too. Because He will physically make you in the image of His delight in you. Thirdly, we will thrive in abundance. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. I don't know why they gave them the wine and us the wheat, but we'll take whatever He gives. But we'll be thriving in it. We'll have abundance. We will never worry about where the next check is coming from. We'll never worry about whether we can pay the bills or whether our tax bill is going to be too high. Nothing like that. We'll be thriving in abundance. Now, I left out... I left out a number four. So let me give that to you. After thriving in abundance, we will be gathered in Jerusalem. We will be gathered in Jerusalem. And this really covers all of chapter 10. But in particular, look at verse 9. He says, Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and their children will survive and they will return. So, gentlemen, it doesn't matter how far afield you get scattered. It doesn't matter how lonely you feel, how separated you feel, how alienated you feel, or how races are divided, or economic groups are divided, or social groups are divided, or even denominations are divided. It will not be any more in His kingdom. This is our big hope, that His presence means unity among the brethren. That's the reason that race relations are so important in Memphis, because you're not going to experience revival without reconciliation in the races. You're not going to have it because when God comes, that's what revival is. It's experiencing God's presence. God's presence means unity. It means mutual affection and love and caring for one another, regardless of someone's socioeconomic background or ethnic background or politics. And when we continue to put politics above Christ, we're not going to have revival. And you can look at the churches in the city, and I can almost guarantee you every one of them has a strong majority blue or a strong majority red. Why? Because people have forgotten that Christ bridges all kinds of chasms. So they're going to get themselves in little political groups, because that's really what they care about. Those are the deepest convictions that really matter in life. So we'll just go to a fellowship where everybody agrees with me politically. And that's what we get in all the churches. White, black, Hispanic, or certainly white and black tend to fall out that way. You have politically liberal churches and politically conservative churches. Oh, talk about mind-numbing boredom. Not to have any diversity that demonstrates the unity of Jesus Christ bringing people who have different opinions, have different backgrounds, have different things in this world that they're accustomed to, coming together to pray and worship together. That's where the excitement is. So he will gather us all in Jerusalem. He's going to do it. So if we want to be on His agenda and going in the direction He's taking us, let's get on with it. Let's be gathered in Jerusalem right now because that's what He's doing. And you see that in 
In verse 6, for example, he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. So this is what he promises to do. This is making us beautiful, intoxicating us with joy, allowing us to reflect his glory, allowing us to thrive in abundance and gathering us in Jerusalem. Now, fifthly, uh, letter E, God will one day judge the foolish shepherds. We have foolish shepherds, both in nations and in churches. We have politically foolish shepherds. We have ecclesiastically foolish shepherds. And God will one day take care of all this. Now, number one, God has given us faithful shepherds in the past. If you look at chapter 11, verse 4 through 17, the end of the chapter, that's really what he's talking about. Now, this section is difficult to interpret. Scholars disagree on its meaning But it seems that he is saying that he has given us uh, pastors or shepherds. In this case, normally it means kings. We think of it as the uh, pastor of a church, but normally the shepherd was the ruler. But here he says, this is what the Lord my God says, verse 4, pasture the flock marked for slaughter. So he is saying, I have sent you faithful shepherds in the past. Pasture the flock marked for slaughter. That is to feed them, take care of them. And God is saying, I have done that. Now, this is very important for us to slow down for just a minute and look at what God is saying here. He's saying, look, I sent you as Rubabel. In some ways, this is a critique of Israel's response to Zerubbabel, the governor who was a descendant of David, remember? And what Zechariah is saying is, you've been given Zerubbabel, who was a good shepherd, and you've basically gone the other way. Now, this is a good reminder for us. Uh, I don't know where all of you go to church, but I know most of you don't go here. But in so many of the churches that I'm assuming we go to, we have, we have good officers. I would say in this church, we have good elders and deacons, good pastoral staff, not perfect. But if you have leadership in your church that is basically walking with the Lord, that doesn't mean that they have a very high IQ. It doesn't mean that they're, they're the wisest people you ever saw in your life. It doesn't mean that they're perfect morally. But where they are really seeking the Lord and you've been given pastors, then they're saying, you better be careful. Because Zerubbabel was an ordinary man. He happened to be in the line of David, but he was anointed king. And sometimes what we don't realize is that in ordinary times like ours, where we're not getting uh, infallible revelations outside of the Scriptures, this is what we call ordinary times, that God will give us ordinary leaders, and we need to be very careful about how we respond to the ordinary leadership in our time. And even if, if you're a Democrat and you do not like the current president, or you're a Republican and you didn't like the previous president, that's about the way it goes, and there's, uh, we live in a democracy, so we're free to critique our congressmen, our mayors, our legislators. We're free to critique our president, our mayor, governor. But just be very careful. If you have a good one, someone who's seeking to follow the Lord, be very careful. And in ordinary times, when you be given someone who can uh, judge uh, well and they're doing a decent job, Just be very careful that you don't demean the human being. It's one thing to disagree with policy. It's another to take on a human being and demean him. 
Now, in this church, to be quite honest, I would say the majority uh, political uh, outlook seems to be Republican. And I heard a lot of things about Bill Clinton that I didn't think were appropriate. And today I'm hearing a lot of things about George Bush I don't think are appropriate from Christians who get so angry because they have such a strong political agenda. That's what they really care about. And they'll just take off on a person without being very careful about what you're doing. Remember, Christians are people from Romans 13. We're people who believe that God has ordained all the authorities on the earth. And when that was written by the Apostle Paul, we had a tyrant in Rome named Nero. And I suppose there are a lot of things you could say about Nero. But Paul said, we're going to submit to the governing authorities. So let's just be very careful about personal slams against people. Let's disagree with policy and let's keep that up because unless people are disagreeing with this president, we're not going to have wisdom. Unless people disagreed with the last president, we wouldn't have had wisdom. Unless people disagree with the next president, we won't have wisdom. We need disagreement. And that's part of our God-given freedom that we're so grateful for. Be careful how you slam people. And in your churches, I noticed in the paper, uh, our good sister church out here, Germantown Baptist, has a little thing going on. Some of you may be from Germantown Baptist. I just want to say, be very careful. Because I happen to know your shepherd over there. He's a good man. He loves the Lord. And so you have to be very careful. I don't know the deacons over there. But here at Second, I know our deacons and I know our elders. And they are, they are solid people. And it's great to see that God has blessed unity in the church through officers and leaders like that. So just be very careful because, for example, if you turn to Matthew 18, which you might do for a moment, you'll see how God, how Jesus himself speaks of how the church is to be ordered by non-apostles. Now, when apostles are here, that's a no-brainer. God's speaking revelation through them. I mean, they're the big cheeses. You know, who's going to fuss with that? Although some did. But now we're dealing in an age of ordinary leadership, both in the political realm and in the church realm. And see what Jesus says. This is on page 1576. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now look at this, verse 18. I'll tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now why is this? Look at verse 19. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now, often those verses 19, 20, we refer to prayer. And it's true. Those apply to prayer. But you know what? They apply to church discipline, too. So in ordinary times, if you have someone who is acting, if you have an officer who is acting in accordance with the scriptures, God is then acting. Let me say it again. If you have officers in your church who are acting in accordance with the word of God, then God is working. Likewise, let me go ahead and stretch it a little bit, and this is awesome for a preacher to say this, but if you go to church on Sunday and your preacher preaches in accordance with the Word of God, then God has preached. 
And the problem is what what Zechariah is saying is you folks in in Israel have forgotten this. You, you were given Zerubbabel and you were given Joshua, the high priest. And God is saying to Zechariah, the prophet, I gave you those people. And you've decided you're just going to go do it your own way. You're going to slam them and go do something your own way. So what he's saying is be very careful when I give you good shepherds, whether they be in the political realm, the civil realm, or whether they be in the church realm. Now, this involves, let's take it down to a really small level. Let's just take your Sunday school class. Just your Sunday school class, because this is where it all starts. In a small unit, what kind of respect is there for the one who's teaching the Word of God if he is teaching in accordance with the Scriptures, and someone who's leading that class if he's leading in accordance with the Scriptures? Now, if they're not, every church should have a form of appeal. That's what appeals are for, is to bring righteousness to correct sinful people like me. So I am bound to my own presbytery. And anyone who wants to appeal something I do or say can either take it to our session or then to our presbytery because I'm under authority. I'm not the authority. I'm under authority. And there always must be a way to appeal against any individual human being because we're all selfish by nature and we're all sinful. We're all liable to go off. But if someone is teaching or leading in accord with the Scriptures, how are you dealing with them? Do you deal with them as God's gift to you or do you deal with them as Satan's threat to you? Someone who's getting in your way. Someone who's taking your place. You'd like to be the leader or whatever it may be. Or someone who's telling you something you don't like to hear. So, just like my little son David. You know, Hi, everybody. Uh, I want things the way I want them. So, God has given us faithful shepherds in the past. That's what Zechariah is saying. So, watch out. And then, look at the next page. We'll see... On number two, we have often rejected the faithful shepherd, verses 8b through 14. And uh, you pick that up where he says, uh, the flock detested me and I grew weary of them. This is verse 8. The flock detested me and I grew weary of them. So what he says, if you read on, he begins to speak of 30 pieces of silver. I'd like for us to cover this for just a minute because this sounds familiar also. Verse 12. I told him, if you think it best, give me my pay. This is the shepherd speaking. But if not, keep it. So what they do? They paid me 30 pieces of silver. What's that? That's payment for a slave. Oh, yeah, sure, we'll pay you like a slave. And verse 13, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So basically, the prophet is saying, oh, it's okay, so you're going to pay me like a slave. That's what you think of prophecy. That's what you think of preaching. So just throw it back to the potter. Does this sound familiar? Matthew picks this up once again. It says the 30 pieces of silver given to Judas were given to the slave who's doing the devil's business. And, of course, Judas eventually throws it back on the ground. So once again, you'll see Matthew picking up Zechariah and saying that the, the life and the, the events of Jesus' life had fulfilled all of this. Then, thirdly, God has disciplined us through foolish shepherds. So if we get foolish shepherds, it's not as though that's not God's purpose too. He says, I'm going to raise up a shepherd who will not care. He will not care for the lost. He will not seek the young. He will not heal the injured. He will not feed the healthy. This is all verse 16. But will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. So when we reject godly leadership, this is what Zechariah is saying, then the Lord will often replace it with ungodly leadership who will just simply take advantage of the sheep and all he's cared about, all he really cares about is his salary. 
his vacation, his perks, his prestige, the way he's treated. And when we get people like that, either in the civil realm or in the ecclesiastical realm, brothers, we're getting what we deserve. And when that happens to us, we need to humble ourselves. And rather than pouring all of our scorn on the leader, and leaders need to be disciplined, and sometimes you need to fire them. Preachers need to be fired. Presidents need to be replaced. But rather than pouring all your scorn on an individual, why don't we humble ourselves, recognizing that it's God's mighty hand under whom we live. And if something has happened with a a, a leader, then something has happened to the whole city or to the whole church or to the whole nation. And it's more appropriate for Christian people to debase themselves when we're under this kind of situation rather than just pour scorn on other people. Both things are happening. The leader may be corrected, but the whole community is being corrected. This is the right approach, and we don't see this among Christian people in politics, nor do we see it in church, where people are taking the responsibility to humble themselves under this season. And rather, they just take the responsibility to critique somebody else. That is not Christian behavior. That's what God is showing us in this text. So let's be very careful. Once again, I am not saying that pastors nor governors should not be critiqued or bosses at work should not be critiqued. I'm just saying be very careful how you do it. It's both and. Yes, there's a critique. There's a right way to bring a critique. And there's a right way to humble yourself under it. And then fourthly, verse 17, God will judge them. He says, woe to the worthless shepherds, verse 17, who deserts the flock. So, okay, so I'm disciplined by having some uh, ruler or some boss or some church officer who's not acting in an appropriate way. But one thing I don't have to worry about is taking vengeance into my own hands. God's going to solve that. Remember, God uses the Babylonians to discipline the Israelites. So it's not our job to go slay all the Babylonians. We'll let God do that in time. And, of course, the Persians did just that. Cyrus took care of it for us. So relax. Uh, God is in charge. Now, secondly, we have about seven or eight minutes to look at chapters 12 through 14. We're going to go quickly. God's city is our home. Where's home for us? God's city. He's restoring a city. Get yourself comfortable with the new Jerusalem. Begin to think of yourself going home when you go to that city that's revealed to us in Revelation 21-22. We have this phrase, on that day, 16 times in these three chapters. You think he's trying to make a point? On that day, on that day. Are these people excited about that day? 16 times, on that day, on that day, on that day. They've got their hope set upon their future. They've got their home in heaven. That's what we've got to do. In chapter 12, we see, first of all, God will reestablish His city. He says, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. He's going to do this. You want to know where the capital city is going to be? You want to know where all the action is going to be? It's going to be in Jerusalem. Not the city on the other side of the Mediterranean, but the city that's on the other side of heaven. It's coming down out of heaven. And that's where the action is going to be. That's our capital city. That's our home. That's what we long for. Secondly, in chapter 12, verses 10 through 14, God will inspire us to mourn our rebellion. As we grow in our Maturity will mourn the fact that we've rejected the leader He gave us, and especially the leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that He says they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child. Once again, this is picked up by Revelation chapter 1. You remember verse 7? This is cited. 
that here's the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory in Revelation 1. But we will mourn because when He was here in the flesh, we put Him to death. And we are putting Him to death, as it were, with our sin every day. And we'll learn how to mourn and grieve our own sin. He'll inspire us to do this as we're revived. Thirdly, God will cleanse us from sin and impurity. That's what's going to happen in heaven. That's our home life where we ought to feel comfortable, where we ought to feel like it's our native land is where there is purity, where there's holiness. And we see several things mentioned here. Number one, idols will be banished in verses one and first part of two. Secondly, verses two B through six, false prophets will be removed. Thirdly, hypocrites will be destroyed. For example, if you look in 7 and 8, he says the Lord. Um, let me be sure I've got the right chapter here. Verse 7 and 8, he says. Uh, chapter 13. Yes, here we go. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What's he saying there? Well, once again, this is quoted in Matthew. That when Jesus Christ is arrested and taken into custody, He will strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So we're scaredy cats. Uh, and that means all the hypocrites will be destroyed. They'll, they'll scatter. So when God comes in His judgment, they'll be just like we were when Jesus was arrested. We were afraid to death before we were filled with His Spirit. And then in verse 9, believers will be refined. Look at this. The third that survives, this third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say the Lord is our God. Now, there is ultimate success and glory for us. We'll be refined and call him out as our God. Now, chapter 14, lastly, shows us that God will glorify his city. This is what it's all about is drawing us into this glorious city where he is king. Number one. Our enemies will be finally defeated. You see in verses 1 through 5, just like you would in Revelation, that there's going to be a battle that takes place and God is going to win the battle and defeat our enemies. Secondly, God will be MLG and W for us. He will give light and water. Look at verse 6. On that day there will be no light, no cold, nor frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. You have a picture just like you do in Revelation 21 and 22, where the Lamb Himself will be the light and where there will be a river flowing through Jerusalem. It, this language is picked right up in Revelation 21 and 22. That's what we're going to have is full provision. Verse 9, God will be unrivaled king. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and uh, His name, the only name. So His name will be the name that's implanted upon that city. His name will be the name that is lifted up. This is what He's going to do. This is what He promises. Fourthly, the city will be eternally secure. There is no one who can invade that city. There's no one who can invade your home. There's no one who can threaten you. you are, your enemies are completely destroyed in that bay. That's peace, gentlemen. And then fifthly, the Lord will stream to Jerusalem. The world will stream to Jerusalem to celebrate. You see, there's going to be a feast of tabernacles. <laughs> there's going to be a celebration of the end gathering. That's what tabernacles is all about. What is the end gathering? It's not the harvest. It's the souls of men. It's men who have been redeemed. And there will be a feast of tabernacles to praise the Lord of the harvest who has brought in all of His people from around the world. 
What joy there's going to be there. And then lastly, sixthly, the city will be holy to the Lord. No more unholiness. Neither will you want unholiness. Everything will be holy to the Lord. Holy is something that is consecrated. That's what holy means. It's consecrated for the Lord's service. Just like all the utensils in the tabernacle were holy to the Lord. They were consecrated and set apart for worship. Well, gentlemen, get this. The whole city will be consecrated and set apart for His use. And every single man will be consecrated and set apart for His use with no mixture of unholiness. What a day that's going to be. Now, lastly, so what? And you'll see the points we're making here. That we must learn to live in hope contrary to the apparent triumph of evil. This is the task. It looks like evil is triumphing. This is not the way God's men live. We see evil. We're not naive about it. We grieve over it. But we have no illusions about the triumph of evil. We know that good is going to triumph. And we live in light of that. We have hope and we have a home to which we're traveling. So we believe the good news of Christ's reign. We believe that He's in charge. Even with the apparent triumph of evil. We submit to His rule. He has come. Palm Sunday, He did march into the city. He did lay claim to God's capital. He is going to restore it. And we submit to His rule, waiting for Him to get us there. We leave vengeance with the Lord, thirdly. We trust Him to avenge our enemies. We're not out to avenge our enemies. We don't take people's heads off when they disagree with us. They may take our heads off, but we don't wreak vengeance. Fifthly, we dispel the gloomy clouds of despair. We all have different personalities. But we have a right. We have a reason to live in joy and the joy of God's victory. And we seek that. We gather now the citizens of Jerusalem. That's what it's all about. We're going to a city where the Lord will be the King, where it will be peace, it will be holy. We want to bring as many people to that city as we can. And lastly, we delight ourselves in His goodness to us. We delight ourselves in it. So don't let tax day, don't let something in your workforce Don't let something in your bank account, don't let something in your marriage or your family get you down when you have all the reason in the universe to be delighted today. And let us delight ourselves, not in our circumstances, not in our nice bank accounts, not in the cars we drive. Let us delight ourselves alone in the Lord and in the wonderful home and the wonderful hope He has prepared for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Zechariah, this mystical book and prophecy. And we know that we shall study it as long as we live until we see You face to face and still be astonished by the layers of truth and reality it reveals to us. And Lord, we pray that we may live in the light of this extraordinary vision that Zechariah lays out for us by Your Spirit's power. We pray that we may not be men who live under earthly circumstances, but we are men who live under heavenly circumstances, under the hand of Almighty God. And so we pray for Your power to be surging through our lives today that we may be the witnesses in a common place doing common things that You want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, don't forget your shoes.